Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord turned him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How united, how one and the same in faith, in life, in lifestyle, must we be in order to call each other and live in relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? How united, how one and the same in faith practices and liturgical preferences must we be in order to worship with each other? How united, how one and the same in theological convictions or biblical convictions, or ethical convictions, or moral convictions, or political convictions must we be in order to commune with each other, or pray with each other, or pray for each other. All of which is to say, how united must we be? How the very same must we be? How very, very big, or how very, very small is the tent in which we must fit together in order to love Jesus with each other and to do so authentically because we do so loving each other. Some who call Jesus Lord say we must be very, very, very one and the same, and therefore the tents that they say that from are very, 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 very small, confiningly suffocating, it seems to me, which is why you probably don't find me there, which may be for the best for some opinions that I hold and some beliefs that I believe would, I'm fairly sure, not be welcomed there. Others who call Jesus say, Lord say, oh my goodness, that's terrible, but we're not like that. Our tent is huge. All are welcomed here, which is a nice-sounding thing to say, but 
I'm not sure I know any place, and that includes this place where that is in fact actually 100% true. I'm actually not even convinced it's supposed to be 100% true. I mean, if we are called together in love, are haters, for example, welcome here? And I'm asking specifically now about unrepentant hate. And by unrepentant hate, I mean, for example, unrepentant racist hate or unrepentant homophobic hate or unrepentant abusive hate or unrepentant pick your poison. Is it welcome here? Are they welcome here? These are not, I hope you realize, entirely rhetorical questions. They are not, too, I'm quite sure you realize, questions I'm going to neatly and finally answer for you or for me, whether you give me 20 minutes or, for that matter, 20 weeks. Although if I have to give you an answer in 20 seconds, I'll give you this one. For the sake of love, there is not a person who is not welcome here. For the sake of love, too, however, there are words, there are practices, there are behaviors that are not welcome here. I bring those questions up by way of turning to this year's lectionary's 16th and final week of reading from St. Paul's epic, and as we've seen, sometimes epically confounding, letter to the Romans, which Lutherans in particular have been theologically chewing on and homiletically proclaiming ever since Martin Luther launched the Reformation with the Book of Romans as his closest confidant. For the first half of the Book of Romans, I've seen Paul expansively, passionately, and deeply theologically seeks both to make the case and proclaim the promise that we are justified by grace through faith, not because we've righteously managed to stop sinning, but emphatically rather because our righteously powerful God powerfully, powerfully loves and forgives sinners who, left to the work of just their own hands and efforts, would be stuck forever in the powerful damnedness of their sin. That first part of Romans concludes with Paul's resounding chorus, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In these last chapters of Romans, however, which we've been reading now these last few weeks, we've seen Paul move from expansive theological conversations about us sinners loved and graced into a relationship with our Lord and Savior to talk now instead about us sinners called by grace into Christ's church to love and to love and worship God in relationship with other Sinners, what could possibly go wrong, right? Well, by the time we get now to Romans 14, we discover that what Paul has by now discovered is that while there may not be anything that can come between us and the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, there surely are things 
that those who call Jesus Lord nevertheless do allow to come between them and each other. More than a few of us know this from personal experience. More than a few of us have been on both sides of those experiences. The first thing Paul mentions as a specific something he has seen come between Christians and split Christian communities is that some in the church then were saying, it's okay to eat meat, while others were saying, no, it's not. You can only eat vegetables, which actually might sound a little bit contemporary, like a discussion or even argument you may have heard or been part of these days, except it's actually not entirely the same, because today that argument is apt to be heard on the platform of global justice or sustainability or health, whereas in Paul's day that argument was argued on the platform of religious practices. And on that platform at that time, there were actually, actually two different scenarios in which that omnivore-vegetarian divide did get divisive. The first was in communities where some in the church were Jews who had become Christians and others in the church were non-Jews, Gentiles, who had become Christians. And some, in all likelihood the more conservative and traditional of the Jews who had become Christians, said that you could only eat meat that was kosher according to Old Testament laws for the slaughter and preparation of meat. And since that was hard to come by for sure in a cosmopolitan city like Rome, the proper thing, the safe thing, the religiously right thing was just not to eat meat at all. Others, on the other hand, said, Jewish, Jewish, we're Christians now. Those Old Testament laws don't apply to us anymore. We are New Testament people. And they fought that fight. And it was a church fight, so you know, it wasn't pretty. Another way in which that meat-vegetable thing played itself out is that in most all major non-Jewish cities, there were temples to other gods where meat was brought to the temple to be sacrificed to these other gods, after which that same meat was sold at the market behind the temple. And this was the best quality meat in town because everybody knew that if you wanted the best from your god, you gave your best to your god. And so all the stuff sold at these, at these, at these temple meat markets was USDA prime meat. So some Christians bought it. And on Sundays, they, they wrapped it in aluminum foil with Campbell's cream of mushroom soup and Lipton dry onion soup mix, or others put it in the crock pot with potatoes and carrots and onions, and it was great because these were great cuts of meat. But others said, you can't do that. That meat has been offered to another god, and so it's spiritually polluted, and so you cannot do that. It's sinful to do that, and they fought that fight. And it may sound a little trivial to you <clears throat> because, of course, everything that has ever gotten between you and another believer has been really, 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 and by really, I mean ultimately important, right? I cannot believe the carpet they chose for the fellowship hall. Can you? What would you think of that hymn? It's terrible. Who's choosing these things? Now here's the thing about Paul's take on his, this first divisive issue in the church. He actually thinks that in both of those scenarios, one of those positions is the right one. 
that being the position that obedience to Jewish laws isn't required of Christians, and there is only one God, and so meat offered to other gods isn't tainted because these gods don't actually exist. So pass the pulled pork. And Paul agrees with that. That's exactly right, he says. All who know that are strong and mature in your faith, he says, except, he goes on to say, and this is where it gets good, the strongest strength there is, he says, is not the strength of being strong and right, as opposed to those who are weak and wrong. The strongest strength there is, Paul says, is the strength of being strong in love, especially with love for the weak. The strongest of the strong, Paul says, in other words, aren't those who are correct, but those who are compassionate. Or, in someone else's words, I think Anne Lamott, it's often better to be kind than to be right. So Paul doesn't take the side of those who are right and then go on self-righteously to judge others. Paul takes the side of those who, right or wrong, when it comes down to cases, seek with love to do what is best for others. Which, let us be clear, does not mean that you have to be some kind of a doormat who never stands strong for what is right and against what you have judged absolutely to be wrong. Pastor Sarah was in a local convenience store right after the derecho when, for a couple of days, you may remember this, um, um, gas was kind of hard to come by and um, stores were running out. And she was inside this particular convenience store gas station where a man was profanely and verbally abusively berating this high school girl behind the counter who had just told him that she had no gas to sell. Pastor Sarah absolutely making a judgment about what is right and what is not, said to him, it is not okay to talk to her like that. He replied to Pastor Sarah, F you. A clear case of the fact that there are times when there is a wrong and a right and strength must stand up and speak out, for there are times when standing up and speaking out, not self-righteously, but absolutely righteously, is what love for another can't not do. Which takes us back to Paul as he moves next to a second issue that has become divisive in the church, this one again being an issue um, which tended to form on the fault line Oh, isn't that an interesting phrase? Um, Fault lines. This is usually where we divide. We're doing a lot of fault finding. This one tended to find on the fault line between Christians who were Jewish and Christians who were Gentiles, again, and who had differences of opinion as to whether Jewish holy days and the Jewish Sabbath day needed to be observed by Christians. Jesus, after all, was a Jew. He observed these days. Or whether Christians were free to leave those traditions behind for new ones, to have their Sabbath perhaps, for example, on Sundays. Because it was on a Sunday, a Sunday called Easter, that the whole Christian movement was raised up. And once again, the differences in this example were threatening to split the church. In this second case, interestingly, Paul did not see a need to declare that one side or the other was right. Rather, he says that this is a case for each to do what is right for them. 
in their minds and in their consciences while respecting that others in their minds and consciences are led in a different direction in this matter. And in cases like these, he says, that doesn't matter. For your unity in this case is not defined by your sameness, but by the fact that in your different ways, doing different things on different days, you are each seeking to worship and honor the very same God. And the not-sameness of that, the diversity of that, isn't a threat to the church. It's actually part of the beauty of what it means fully to be the church. Surely there are times when we can't say it doesn't matter. Either way is fine. Surely there are times when we must draw a line in the sand and say this is how it is, period, and we as Christ's church cannot disagree about this. The problem is that we sinners have a way and a history, which probably also means we have a future, of making too many of those lines in the sand, insisting that to be Christian must mean, must mean being on my side of this line and this one and this one and this one and that one and that one and that one and that one and ad, ad nauseum other ones as well. On that first issue, Paul said there actually was what he'd call a wrong and a right. Although that, that being not a court of law, but Christ's church, the highest bar in this case, he said, wasn't to be correct, but to be kind, to be compassionate, to act not with the pride of being right, but with the righteousness of love. But on the second issue, Paul takes that different approach, reminding us that there are times when it's just fine. It really is for each of us to do what is right for us while respecting and, again, treating with kindness and love those who, doing what is right for them, are doing things differently than you. Pastor Sarah and I, and I want to say something. I am proud of us for this. I mean, not too proud, um, Midwest Lutheran proud. Pastor Sarah and I were facing early in this pandemic, pandemic with a challenge to work out the fact that something very important to both of us led our hearts and minds to different places. That being the very important thing, being celebrating Holy Communion in times of social distancing and digital worshiping. She, for reasons I believe I came to understand, does not want to preside at communion digitally. I, for reasons I believe she understands, do. Do you want to know why this has worked out between us so not divisively, worked out so well that really I'm, 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 I'm proud? Because while we were both doing that, doing what to our hearts and minds seemed like the best practice, we found that we were nevertheless, one, willing to respect that someone else in genuine faith and faithfulness could be led to a different practice, and two, we were both willing to acknowledge her to me and me to her, there's a chance one of us could be wrong, me or her. But there's grace for that, the grace of God, and we determine the grace of one another. 
But I actually believe, and, and I won't speak for her, but I wouldn't be shocked if she believed too, that this is a case like that second one Paul talked about in Romans 14, where you know what? There maybe isn't a clear right or wrong. And we are just both in these challenging times trying to do our best in different ways to love and worship our same Lord with each other, even when we can't, for matters of our own minds or hearts, preside at worship exactly the same as each other. Surely, brothers and sisters, there are times in our life together where there is a right and a wrong, and one side of a line in the sand is the only side Christ's church faithfully can stand on. But there aren't as many of those. There aren't nearly as many of those as the church, including me, have sometimes said there need to be. And in those times when there isn't a definitely, singularly, distinctly, one and only Christian side of the issue, those aren't the hills on which the church in our relationships with one another is called to die on or to destroy each other on. For we are the church, and we together Worship he who, on that hill far away, did die, that we, forgiven and loved, might live his love, his love for sinners, together. Amen.